Faces come and go and I'm forever grateful Come and tell me long and slow Exactly what I wait for Better times, yeah, better times Somehow I don't believe it I built a house up long ago Just to up and leave it Today, I'm joined by a trio of guests who will be giving us uh, the bobwhite quail hunting season outlook. Returning to the podcast is Andy Edwards, program manager for Quail Forever. And Andy will be steering the ship for most of today's quail conversation as we chat with Michael Hook, the small game coordinator for the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, and the chair of the National Bob White and Grassland Initiative Technical Committee. That, that's a mouthful, Michael. <laughs> you, got, you got a lot of titles there, dude. Tim Corrin, our director of field operations for Quail Forever in the South region. Uh, Tim and Michael are both avid bird hunters, as is Andy, and they spend uh, their day working to help grow quail populations through their on-the-ground habitat efforts across the southeastern United States bobwhite quail range. So today we're going to cover a lot of ground focused on bobwhite quail and bobwhite quail states in the season ahead and what that outlook looks like for a state-by-state forecast. So uh, joining me, we'll we'll ask uh, every participant here to uh, go around the horn, give a little bit of introduction about who they are, where they grew up, uh, favorite breed of bird dog and, and what they do for a living. And we'll start with our guest, our featured guest, Michael Hook, Hook from the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. Welcome back, Michael. It's been, what, two years since you were on, I think? Uh, probably so. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I appreciate y'all having me again. Um, like I say, I always enjoy this. A uh, little bit of background. Like I say, I was born and raised here in Lexington um, in the middle of the South Carolina. I moved around with the job for a little while. And a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to move back to the uh, family farm. And so that's where I reside today. And um, like I say, it's myself, my wife and two kids and two bird dogs. So um, as far as the bird dogs go, I, right now I've got a, a German short hair that uh, is my primary bird dog. Um, also got a Boykin Spaniel. She's 15 years old though. Uh, she retired, I don't know, three years ago. Um, so she just, she chills on the couch these days, but (laughs) we're still going strong. So I can't complain. As a uh, South Carolina resident, you're obligated to own a Boykin, aren't you? I mean, Uh, absolutely. The state dog of South Carolina. I think there's I think there's 11 states with a state dog and South Carolina is one of them. And it's the Boykin Spaniel. And they're fantastic little dogs. They're they're good little little hunters. So, so I've is, enjoyed them. Is there another one in your future? Uh, probably so. Um, uh, I haven't decided what direction I'm going to go. the The short hair is four years old. I I like I say I'd like another bird dog. I do some waterfowl hunting too. So I probably end up with another boykin and another bird dog at some point. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't know. I and I grew up with with setters, so I'm thinking hard about getting another setter. So, yeah. <laughs> just get them all, yeah. man. Variety is the spice <laughs> of life. Exactly. Exactly. 
All right, so I'm going to ask the ignorant northerner question for you. Um, South Carolina, you got gators down there, don't you? We do, yeah. Um, and any bird dog gator encounters that would scare the shit out of me? <laughs> well, it's it's a fact of life down here. Um, and, and for the most part, the gators are found below the fall line, so like halfway throughout the state, Columbia sort of being the midpoint towards the coast is where you're going to find the gators. Generally speaking, everything they tell us is gators aren't really that active looking to feed, you know, under 60 degrees or I can't remember the exact number, but it, you know, anytime we're going to be out hunting, they're not going to be actively feeding. Um, they may be up and around, but they're not supposedly actively feeding. That being said, you know, we've got early uh, teal, early goose seasons. I was always pretty cognizant of that. Um, you know, September it'd be 90 degrees. I, I, I wouldn't put my dog in the water at that point. But yeah. but as far as quail hunting, um, you know, we don't open up till the end of November. So we're good on temperatures there. And, and same thing with ducks at that point in time. You know, the, the gators are not not that big of an issue for us but yeah between gators and rattlesnakes i mean we've got all that good stuff so <laughs> yeah a completely different set of variables for for me <laughs> yeah all right i don't have to worry about porcupines though so there's trade-offs yeah but or a wolves i mean yeah that's so i was gonna say porcupines wouldn't eat my dog but a wolf could so <laughs> I, I guess there's that yeah all right, well, let's bounce to uh, Tim Corrin. Welcome, Tim. It's good to be on here, Bob. You know, I've been with the, been with the organization for over 20 years now and, uh, you know, had just about every position, held almost every position we've had in the, out in the field, you know, at one time or another. And now I get to happily manage, manage that branch of things down in the south region of the country. Um, pretty much almost the entire Bob White range from Maryland to Texas and everything to the southeast. Um, so it's been good. It's good to be on here and happy to talk about quail today. I got uh, so talking about dogs. If you hear any rumbling around here, I have a I have a 12-year-old golden retriever and I have a 15-week-old golden retriever <laughs> wrestling with him on the floor right now. And um, I also have an English pointer that's going to turn seven this year. So... I'm trying to do the best of both worlds, yeah. and they are definitely two different worlds. But I, <laughs> both weapons in the arsenal wherever we go. Do you do you hunt your golden and your pointer together, or do you completely Abs separate? Absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'd like I'd like to tell you I've had these epic days where we've done that and one points and one flushes. Uh -huh. But truth be told, if I were to do that. Um, it, yeah, I tried it a couple times. I've tried it more than a couple times, and I know it doesn't work for me. I'll say that. <laughs> it's uh, it's just too much uh, stress to try to control the the docile retriever and the muscle with the nose at the same time. Right on. It's, uh, it's right a lot. On. But I love them both uh, equally individually. I will say that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andy, welcome back. You're you're taking the lead again on this one. It's a quail-focused conversation, but for folks that are popping into this podcast and maybe don't recognize your voice or know you, give them a, give them an overview of of the man, the myth, the legend that is Andy <laughs> Edwards. Wow, that's that's too much of a build up. And uh, you said I'd be steering the ship today. It's kind of like 
kind of look at that like I'm driving. You know, I touch the wheel every once in a while. I'm not hoping to do a whole lot here today. Just let Michael and, and Tim <laughs> roll. Um, but, hey, I'm the program manager for Quail Forever, a position that was created about two and a half years ago to elevate the brand of Quail Forever within the organization of, you know, overall of Pheasants Forever. I've been with the organization um, since 2003 and um, just just a few weeks after Tim came on, he loves to point out, but um, and actually left for a little while and worked for a state nonprofit here in Tennessee and came back. So I'm, I'm one of the, the prodigal sons here and, and was able to return back to the organization. You're going to have to get me out of here with a stick of dynamite the next time. So um, love it and love kind of being able to be the the brand champion, if you will, just to help build the build the organization. Um, our external partners also kind of help making connections within. Gosh, man, we're growing. We're growing at a rapid rate with with the quail folks on the ground. And so hopefully I can plug in and be a be a connector for people that are doing great things um, out there on the landscape and just elevate our brand, man. Cool. Right on. Well, speaking of elevating our brand, shout out to Onyx Hunt, who has helped elevate our brand as a national sponsor of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever and this podcast. Thank you so much to Onyx Hunt. And right now for listeners, uh, Onyx is offering 20% off your Onyx Hunt membership by using the code PFQF at checkout. And Onyx will donate a portion of those of that uh, purchase back to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's Habitat mission when you use the code PFQF at onyxhunt.com. All right, Andy, the proverbial microphone is being passed your way. Let's let's uh, let's talk state by state bobwhite quail forecast for this year. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Um, man, we're, we're going to focus primarily on the southeast today. I know on one of your um, recent podcasts, you touched on several of the, the key quail states along with the pheasant forecast. So appreciate you stealing those from me. And uh, and now we'll just have to we're going to be relegated to the southeast. But um, no, so you did. You touched on a lot of those great destination states. And, and so we're going to we're going to focus primarily on the southeast and hit on those pretty hard. Um, but before we jump in, I want to I want to kind of let folks uh, hear what Michael's been doing lately. Um, Michael and I have have known each other since 16, 2016, probably when we started working uh, in South Carolina uh, with with Tim and Kent Adams, um, who at that time was our East region director on a on a collaborative um, position there, a co-op agreement where we had um, um, some some dual efforts there with Forest Service, South Carolina DNR, and Quail Forever. And that that project's still going great. And we love the work that's been able to be accomplished there because of it. But what does it look like uh, in your role day to day? What's what's the cool stuff maybe that you're getting to do out there on the landscape? Uh, this time of year, we are trying to catch up with our last fall burns. Um, yep. So we're, we're having, it's, it's nice to be able to get out of the office and do that, um, light up a, a stand here and there. Um, just things that we may have missed or if we're trying to target sweet gums, that's, that's what we're trying to do. Not, not okay. large scale stuff, but just trying to knock sure. back some sweet gum. Um, Late growing season burns. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And um, 
but we got some fire on the ground on Bob White Hills uh, property last week. Okay. It was pretty cool. Awesome. And, um, and like I say, I got one here at the house. I'm going to try to knock out this afternoon. So nice. Um, it's that time of year. And then starting next week, it's fall cubby count season. So for the next month, we'll be out doing fall cubby counts and, you know, had this interview happened a week or so from now, I could really tell you what we're looking like going into the season. But um, sure. as it stands right now, you know, we're just basing everything we know off of brood counts and, and whistle right. counts. Right. But, but yeah, man, this is one of my favorite times of the year. Um, oh yeah. I, I get to do a lot of field work. <laughs> that's good. Well, and that's a great point that we will, there will be several States that will be doing fall covey counts and you could check back in on those particular States and see kind of what their updated numbers look like. Most of what we're going to be talking about today is based off of brood counts from the spring. And so um, how about with your role as chair of the, and I'm going to, I'm going to do the in the, the acronym here, the NBGITC National Bob White and Grasslands Initiative Technical Committee Chair. What do you what do you do in that role? Yeah, so just a little bit of background on the MBGI. Um, for folks that don't know, this was this is a a, a range wide effort to to work on quail populations. You know, th- this this thing started back in '95. Um, couple of the southeastern quail states got together and said, look, we're losing losing birds and losing birds fast. We got to do something. And and it morphed several times over the years. And the most recent iteration is the National Bob White Grassland Initiative. And and like I say, it involves every state in the quail range. Um, and it's just like it's a it's a unified plan to get habitat on the ground. Um, yeah. So, you know, my part of that is I, I wrangle uh, all of, of the efforts, uh, for two years. So, you know, the folks that are involved in this are quail coordinators from all the quail states. Um, Mm -hmm. usually some private lands folks from all these quail states got a bunch of different NGOs involved. Um, and we're all like, say, working to get quail on the ground. And, um, we've got different committees, uh, subcommittees, working groups that are all trying to do just that. And, you know, some of them are, prescribed fire, focusing on prescribed fire. Some of them are farm bill working groups, um, Mm -hmm. working lands for wildlife groups, you know, all manner of of things to get habitat on the ground. You know, it has to happen somewhere. And so these meetings happen once a year and um, all of us get together, talk quail and quail habitat and that's and right. so I'm like All saying, I'm sort quail of nerds get together and for like four days we talk nothing but quail. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is. Person. Um, so yeah, Tim, so I just sort of wrangle that. We see, yeah, we see you every year at those, of course, and uh, and we always kind of love getting together and just really nerding out on all the latest research for quail, the latest management, um, newest that's newest science that's out there. And uh, I think uh, MBGI does a great job in kind of keeping folks up to speed on that, and then helping out with implementation of those state plans. So that's awesome. Um, you know, we're going to we're going to try to take a quick journey. We're going to hopefully go fairly um, count, let's say clockwise, uh, starting up in Virginia. And uh, oh, yeah. we're going to just roll through some some overviews, <laughs> some highlights of what our um, season dates are and what the outlooks are in those states. So Tim is going to hit the ground with us on Virginia and, uh, yeah. and start us off here. Before I dive into the, you know, the quail conditions there, I do want to just talk about our partnership there in Virginia. Yeah. We currently 
um, in the last uh, few months here. We have two biologists on the landscape in Virginia that work for Quail Forever in conjunction with the Natural Resource Conservation Service and the DNR there. Um, and recently, um, you might have noticed on our website, we had a position just close, and that's a new partnership between Quail Forever, the Smithsonian Institute, the Virginia Grassland Bird Initiative, and the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. We all came together on a position that we're putting in the Shenandoah Valley, a real beautiful part of That's the world, awesome. and we're excited about it. Because talking with Mark Puckett about the quail season, he's a small game project leader there, a big supporter of our organization. His dog is even a life member. Um, <laughs> but the season dates are November 11th through January 31st. And Mark says, you know, the, the places he'd really focus on if you're, if you're going there to hunt the eastern third of the state, which is right where we just dropped that uh, new position that was yep. just announced closed. And, and the reason being, it's a beautiful part of the country. There's a good mixed bag there. Um, if you time it right, you can, you can hunt bob whites, woodcock, and late season dove all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, a beautiful part of the world. Um, you know, private landowners are talking good about, you know, just areas that are managed, habitat that's managed, they have good birds. You know, the timber harvest is is back on the rise as their commercial forestry operation is, is coming back um, there. Um, saw a hiccup in that for a while. but So there is an increase in early successional habitat, which is great for birds. Um, but just know that when you go to Virginia, Mark says, uh, realize you're there for the experience. Get to chase your dog, see beautiful country, hopefully make a great day out of getting a couple of woodcock, bounce into a cubby or two of bob whites, maybe take some overhead shots at some doves and realize that it's just a great place to be and you might get a handful of everything but not a tailgate full of anything. <laughs> you know? So um, keep that in mind when you go to Virginia. And Mark Puckett, we appreciate all your support there, man. Yeah, absolutely. Bob? So, so very early in that uh, recap of Virginia, you mentioned the Smithsonian Institute. Yeah. Yes. And I know listeners' ears pricked up like i know what okay what? what what's the connection with the smithsonian yeah. and quail yep so <clears throat> the smithsonian is really active in um you know the science of things and land management too they pair up with coalitions and and the proximity of virginia right there to dc as well you know their active presence with uh you know institutes and museums if you will in the town of dc and their administration being headquartered there but they they have this office um, over in the Shandoah Valley, a lot of great folks there um, involved with just a coalition of partners that want to do great things on the landscape in a beautiful part of the world. Um, a, lot of, a lot of grazing, uh, a lot of good naturally successional habitat, mm -hmm. uh, like I was talking about forestry operations, um, you know, reducing the overhead canopy reduction, <laughs> I like to call it, because cutting and thinning sometimes frowned on. Um, but just opening up the sky, let that sunlight down on the ground and throw some fire through it and just naturally making birds. And yeah. Smithsonian's actually involved in that with the Virginia Grassland Bird Initiative um, as their key partner there. That's really, I mean, that's super cool because, you know, my perspective of the Smithsonian is kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? Like, yep. Yeah. They, they, yep. They, yeah. Right? They only want the, the grail. We want the grail. <laughs> not, not necessarily Bob White quail habitat. So, sure. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's a really cool oh, yeah. partnership. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of great folks, too. I mean, just people like us that love what they're doing. Um, Justin Proctor is the coordinator I've been working with out there. A great guy. Just reached out. They got a grant. They've been working with us and our um, our biologists already, and then we have uh, 
uh, regional working lands position that focuses on um, pollinators well. They had a lot of interest in that. So we partnered with them on that as well. And just um, a great budding relationship there that we're hoping to continue and grow and build more and do more with them in the future. It's like I was I was with you when, when I heard Smithsonian, I immediately just think about the Smithsonian Institute or museums in DC, you know, and some of my favorite places to visit when I'm out there, but I, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought that we'd be partnering with them on a, on a NIFWIF grant and putting habitat on the landscape, but I'm, I'm glad and proud that we are. NASA, yeah. NASA, take notice where we want, uh, we yeah. want you on a quail habitat project. Next. Come to the moon next. Space Force. <laughs> Um, well, one thing that's interesting though, you, you mentioned it and we're, we're partnering a whole lot with organizations that are super concerned about loss of habitat and the number one, you know, most kind of, um, most endangered, if you will, habitat is, is prairies and especially in the Southeast where we hadn't traditionally, you know, focused on how many prairies there were. There's this old myth that a squirrel could go from the Atlantic ocean to the Mississippi river and not not touch the ground. It's not true. And uh, there's tons and tons, you know, there are millions of acres of, of prairie throughout the Southeast that are, that are gone or are severely, you know, degraded. Um, and so other partners like Dwayne Estes at the uh, Southeastern Grasslands Institute here in Tennessee, he's covering all the Southeast, like a partner that we're working with because of that uh, decline in, in grassland, prairie, basically non-forested uh, landscapes. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, we're working with a whole new suite of partners on the, on the quail side. We're really proud of. Um, let's, let's kind of move the conversation um, on down South and Michael will, will have you of course, talk to us about what's going on in South Carolina for this year. I am cautiously optimistic on South Carolina. Um, you know, we had a pretty mild winter last year. Um, some of the last part of quail season was downright hot. Um, there's a little bit of concern, you know, moving birds on those 80 and 85 degree days, you know, when they're on public lands getting bumped several times a day, you know, you worry about individual birds at that point. But as a you know general rule, we had a, a pretty mild winter. Everybody come out of it good. Um, yeah. You know, we should have been carrying a lot of birds into the spring. We had a lot of good rain this spring. Um, like I say, we had really good habitat conditions pretty much throughout the summer. So our brood counts are, are, are up. Um, just anecdotal reports coming from folks. They're seeing a good many broods. Um, you know, I like I say, we haven't had a, a hurricane hit us this year or a tropical storm, which is, you know, always a threat. Oh, even up until, you know, I think it was two yeah. years ago, we had one last it was the second week of October and you, you think you'd made it into the clear and then all of a sudden you get six, eight, 12 inches of rain dumped on you. And you know, that cool. can certainly impact birds. So luckily I'd say we've, we're sitting pretty this year. So I, I've got a lot of uh, high hopes. Great. Um, great. Yeah. I, I, what about the season dates there in South Carolina? I, I think, uh, and if nothing else, I, I, I love pointing this out to Bob because it's so much different than the, than the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're one of the later ones that, that opens up. Um, we always traditionally open up the Monday before Thanksgiving. So this year it's uh, November 21st and we go through March 1st. Uh, it's a long season for us. Um, yep. Like I say, we've, and you know, November 21st is the official open and a lot of folks don't, 
start messing with birds until January 1st. Um, get the, the yeah. deer hunters out of the, the woods and, and then they feel comfortable going in. But like I say, us diehard folks there, we're hitting it hard that first week. So. Well, I, I think that's a perfect example of kind of most of our southeastern states where it's not necessarily the season opening that limits you. It's the it's the the deer hunters that are in the woods. Hey, I'm, I'm a deer hunter, too. I'm not knocking on deer hunters, but it's just that time of year through typically uh, early January um, in most of our southeastern states. Those are there are people in the deer woods, you know, and so you're not going to typically go until January, February. Yeah, like I say, all of our seasons are open at that point, so we mm -hmm. got a lot of a lot of folks in the woods. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, great, man. Um, I know on the on the actual website. So if you go to our forecast, if you listen to this, want a little more info of any of these states, go to that forecast. Uh, there's some, you know, some more content there, some more info. We're just trying to give you the the thirty thousand foot view, if you will, and. Um, and, and move around the, around the southeast. So with that, I'll, I'll touch on Georgia, another another state which has a, a season that goes all the way to the end of February, the 29th this year. So it must be a leap year we're heading into. And uh, so that's pretty cool. But, you know, Georgia is, I would say, very similar, Michael, to what you talked about with <clears throat> with South Carolina. So, you know, a little dry here and there, but where we got rains, uh, didn't really have anything super terrible weather wise uh, there was a little bit of an impact and effect from hurricane adelia but nothing huge um dallas ingram a great partner with us with georgia dnr and she's done a great job here on the on the forecast for georgia one of those states i mentioned earlier where you could get a, a fall covey count number and so they'll be posting that here in the next um in the next little bit you know it could be um out in conjunction with this podcast, actually, that you could go to the Georgia DNR um, website and look for their fall covey count data to kind of get a better idea of what's of what's out there on the landscape as as close to the season as you could possibly get info. So um, Georgia point or uh, Dallas points out that in Georgia, there's, um, you know, kind of a band on the coastal plain from Burke County to Seminole County, um, but public land. That's, that's going to be your best opportunities, but public land is kind of limited there. They, they do have a quota draw permit, but the season, the, the deadline for that is the 15th of October. So we will have, we will have passed that um, just barely by the deadline. But if you're interested in getting a high, high quality hunt in Georgia and you always wanted to do it, let's say you're maybe from the Midwest and you want to go and get a, a wild bird hunt in Georgia look to those quota deadlines um, and October 15th is that deadline. Several different wildlife management areas that are managed exclusively for, for quail. And you have a, a, when you get drawn, you have a, a great chance at getting, uh, getting on coveys and being out there and not, not in a crowded situation. It's a, a limited draw and uh, be a great, great way to experience that Southeast uh, um, quail hunting. If you haven't done it before and really want to get in on it. So, so I would say for sure, um, check that out for next year. And, um, but yeah, they're doing a lot of great work that, of course, uh, right on the southern border of, of Georgia and on the, the southeast corner as well. I'm sorry, southwest corner around Albany, the, the kind of the quail mecca, if you will, for the southeast. Those Thomasville and Albany areas, lots and lots of great quail management going on. And we really appreciate all the, all the folks out there working so hard for, 
for quail. Uh, our friends at Tall Timbers are down there as well, doing a lot of great research. So Georgia is is and hopefully always will be a great uh, great quail state. So with that, Tim, we're going to rock over to Florida and have you hop in. Yeah, absolutely. Their uh, season dates there in Florida are November 11th to March 3rd. Again, one of those states that if you're from the Midwest or the North, you can bounce down there for spring break practically and uh, chase birds around. But we talked to Greg <laughs> Hagen, the uh, quail coordinator for the state there <clears throat> for the Florida Wildlife Commission. He said they had favorable winter conditions and where there's good management, there's there's good numbers of birds. Um, they had a touch of a drought, but late rains helped production quite a bit. And he says, don't be afraid to go public. You know, there's a lot of WMAs in the Panhandle, the Central and the Southwest part of the state. And they support good amount, you know, good numbers of birds. Um, be aware, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the hurricane, Idalia, earlier. You know, be aware of the effects on that. Like Michael said, there are areas where things were looking really good. And then you get these huge torrential downpours mm -hmm. that can be, have an idea of impacts. But it's not, it wasn't statewide. So just kind of be aware of your your location, your geography, and, and make sure you don't go into one of those areas that really saw a mass flood, you know, from yeah. a hurricane. Um, but, you know, late effects on those hurricanes, and we'll talk about Louisiana a little bit later, but, you know, two, three years down the line, they are definitely can be a natural timber thinner, you know, and promote a lot of early sectional habitat for the next couple of years. So just because those areas might be bad this year doesn't mean they won't be great in a couple of years or have positive effects down the road. Um, and, like, again, you know, just – when you're when you're there, whether it's whether it's you know big WMAs, uh, Appalachicola, for National Forest, just look for areas with recent active management. Things that have been burned, things that have been thin, things where you can tell a roller chopper went through. If you haven't seen one of those, it's pretty wild. Kind of a medieval yeah. machine, but it uh it definitely has great benefits for for promoting early successional habitat and will help you find birds. That's where they're they're hanging out. So when you're down there, just uh, go to my fwc.com that's the state agency web page check out some maps and pull up you know pull up forest service you know forest service areas on on x and zoom in and see if you can find areas where it looks like there's 50 percent or less trees on the landscape and if there's been some fire run through there um there's a good chance you're gonna find birds yeah but yeah again you're going way till march 3rd so that's i mean it's a long season you know, our uh, South Florida Flatwoods chapter down there, Becky Jacobs and all those folks in the in the South Florida yep. area, they they hunt the Babcock web uh, routinely. And one thing I'd like to point out is, you know, you think about maybe if you're hunting in Missouri or Oklahoma and how those could be so different. South Florida, they're hunting in huge swamp buggies that are yeah. sitting up way up and looking out across those I mean, it's essentially, it's a prairie there too. It's just a little different uh, and it's affected by water more than uh, the presence of a lot of water uh, <laughs> more than, than the lack of it. But um, trees can't grow in some of those areas because it is so wet and you're, you're just north of the Everglades. You're riding around in a swamp buggy oh, and yeah. you're hunting quail on these little dry spots. And it's, it's so different if you want to experience it's that. They actually do field trials. Uh, they got a field trial October 21st and 22nd on that Babcock web uh, management area. It's a, uh, it's a wild deal down there. There's a, they're a great bunch of folks and um, something totally, totally different. Uh, if you wanted to experience it's, it's a very long state with a lot of, you know, oh. diverse geographical yeah. areas. You know, I mean, you can go from the red Hills in the North to the Appalachia, and the Gulf area, work your way through the central part of the state where there's a bunch of grazing 
And like you said, all the way down to north of the Everglades where you're in a swamp buggy getting up on the high spots and yeah. finding wild chubbies, you know. Crazy. It's unbelievable. It's really neat. Yep. Well, let's uh, let's rock on to Alabama, Michael. Um, yeah. So Alabama is a lot like South Carolina. Um, mild winter, good rainfall all summer. Um, you know, Stephen Mitchell, my counterpart over there, is um, saying they're they're expecting something similar to South Carolina. Pretty good reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they were not impacted by any kind of, of storms this summer either. Um, you know, they they're expecting where people are managing for quail. They're going to have quail this year. Um, and you know, he's, he, he's got a couple WMAs where they do just that. They're, they're going to be successful. He says, um, you know, he mentioned Barber WMA, uh, Geneva state forest. Um, and he said, you can find some birds even on like the Talladega forest and all, um, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, there's opportunities out there. He mentioned in places where they're not ma- necessarily managing for quail, just active timber management or whatever. He said, yep. there's, there's birds you can find, even if they're not focusing on quail. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I think of, of Steven and some, and then also some chapter folks that we worked with in Alabama. And one thing I, I remember asking them about, you know, was kind of what's the secret. And, and I think all of us on the screen here feel this, but in those areas where there's low quail numbers, you know, and they maybe get some pressure, you, you're going to have to be willing to do the, to do the hard work. You're going to have to be willing to get farther off the road and into the thicker stuff. Um, <laughs> to, to, you know, we all like, you're going to have to be willing to really bust in there and get, get into the thick of things, um, to get those birds. But that, that to me is the key for when you're hunting public land birds, it might get some pressure, particularly late season. Yeah. You kind of got to be willing to go where nobody else is going to go. And I'll tell you, previous to, to on X and, and those guys making it easy to keep track of, of yeah. habitat management, you know, on the ground, it used to be, I would keep a, an almanac in the truck yep. on the front seat. Oh, yeah. I'd be drawing pictures yeah. on maps and, and yeah. putting dates on it and going, I need to check this in a couple of years. And, you know, on X has made that really easy. Um, oh, yeah. It's just dropping pins now, but, you know, just keeping those in your back pocket, having them there going, Oh yeah, I need to check on that. Or you're out riding around yapping to look at your map and go, Oh shoot, there's that place over there. I need to go check it. And like say, keeping those records go a long way. Yep. Look for those timber management areas. Look for the log landings, check out where those forests have been thin and next couple of years, it ought to be good uh, for sure. Great. Well, thanks Michael for that one. That's, that's, uh, Let's head across the river, Tim. Let's go to Arkansas. Head to Arkansas. All right. Well, Clint, uh, Clint Johnson, quail coordinator there. We got a bunch of good info from him. Uh, season dates are November 1st through February 5th. And again, we got a trend going here. Clint says areas with good management on good habitat have good bird numbers. Um, they're posting some really good numbers there. Uh, you know, some of the some of the best covey counts in almost 20 years. And the adult bird surveys they have going on there right now are showing some of the highest counts since 2005. Wow. Um, you know, we saw something like this in Texas a few years back when we got some good rains. And mm-hmm. in Arkansas, I think you got a combination of, of good weather, you know, mild winters, followed by decent rainfalls. And, but more than anything, you have a huge focus on the habitat. 
um, on private yeah. and public land through our conservation partners. We have a strong number of biologists there. Uh, if you look at our map on our website, we also have a habitat team there that's doing work on private and public right. land in conjunction with the state. And just a very active state agency that is doing a lot of good habitat work out there and the results are showing in their bird numbers. You know, I mentioned earlier going on on X, look at, uh, look at those national forest service lands and look for areas where it looks like there's 50% or less trees, you know, and especially if it's had a fire going through it, there's likely to be really good numbers there. And then there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of public access on wildlife management areas there. Um, like Big Lake, Lake Grayson, Casey Jones, Cedar Mountain, the Cherokee, Jim Kess. And these are all large spaces of ground that are owned by industrial timber companies and are leased by the state uh, for access for hunters and managed as well. So check those out. You do have to go to a vendor or on the website through Arkansas Fish and Game and buy an access permit for 40 bucks a year if you hunt on any of those large jumbo UMAs that are leased by the state from the industrial uh, timber companies. But they are uh they're they're one of the they're probably one of the top hot spots right now if you will i think to go on an adventure and go look for birds because their numbers are great they have they do have a ton of good access and they offer you know a lot of different landscapes and a nice adventure i guess if you will to go explore and bust out your onyx app and go look for birds but when somebody tells me they got the highest adult bird count on surveys since 2005 i'm likely to get in the truck with my dog mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm just yeah. saying they might have some they might have a little extra company in arkansas this that's year right there they keep talking like that but it's good to hear it's a great success story to hear in the bob white range we're hoping to create more like it but we're happy to and proud to be partners with all the folks there in arkansas and we appreciate clint's advice and um he's gonna see some non-resident hunters come come in his, come in his backyard <laughs> this year if you will but uh good good stuff in arkansas that is Bob, do you um, have oh. sorry sorry go ahead michael i was gonna say that is some good news from arkansas you know you know i we have us folks in south carolina like to get out ourselves and look around and a lot of folks have concentrated on texas over the years and and, sure. and and if we can shortstop there in arkansas and pick up a couple <laughs> birds i i wouldn't mind doing that myself <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You know, I really think I really think that that's something that folks are doing more. Um, I mean, honestly, Tim and I are probably going to do it in in January, where we're stopping in Missouri or Arkansas, and then heading on out to Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas area, and um, and picking, you know, seeing picking around a few different states. Um, a lot of those states we don't have the information here, but a lot of them have like a three day license. So yeah. you know, if you oh, want to yeah. kind of sampler platter and hit a couple hit a day or a day and a half here and then go somewhere else you can do that so check out those those uh options for that that you know two three four day license uh when you're when you're thinking about planning out your trips but yeah arkansas and and tim's not gonna mention it or hasn't mentioned it much but i think it's it's uh deserving to kind of sing the praises of the south region of quail forever because man fastest growing region in the in the nation um just putting the full gamut of, of options out there for state agency partners to help out the landscape. So, you know, we, we of course kind of hit the ground with farm bill biologists and they're working with farm farm bill related programs, private lands biologists basically is what they are. And then, you know, we're, we're filling in now with, you know, people who can do prescribed fire, people who are, are helping out, you know, manage the land, 
uh, prescribed burn um, coordinators that are helping kind of uh, direct policy a little bit or direct kind of some of those burning uh, plan management at the state level, just filling in lots and lots of gaps. We're doing grassland and grazing coordinators. We're doing, um, Tim, help me out. I'm struggling, but we're doing Habitat. a ton of Habitat teams have been a big one. You know, these prescribed fire teams we're putting out there on the landscape to actually yep. try to reduce yeah. that bottleneck of landowners that want to do these management practices, but don't have the means to do so. Or, or they got smaller parcels. The contractors are tied up on bigger things, trying to make ends meet and make a living and totally understand all that. Everybody, everybody needs the help, but we have, yep. uh, you know, this last year we put a habitat team in Tennessee. We put one in Georgia. We're in the process of putting one in South Carolina for Michael and his crew there. Arkansas was one of our first. It was around the landscape. And we're looking at putting one in Texas too. Um, and prescribed fire coordinators. We just got one hired in Arkansas. Just, I believe this week hired one in uh, South Carolina. Michael, we're trying to yep. working to get one on the landscape in Texas too. And it's just, like you said, just pulling everybody's efforts together to, to do good management work because as you can hear from everybody you talk to they they are all saying where we're where there's good management there's good bird numbers and we recognize yep. that and want to do as much as we can yep. and i think that's why you're seeing i mean pretty much over the whole southeast you're seeing um and it's not the most glowing report for you know a covey behind every tree by any means but hey for many many years there have been declines and i feel like we're we're, we're seeing, I know in South Carolina, it was mentioned the curve is flattened uh, where we're doing active management and targeting our efforts, which is what we're absolutely out on the landscape trying to do. It's it's making a difference and it's making a difference where you can see it. Uh, a lot of times, um, even we've had this comment from our chapters, like we know we have biologists out there, but where's where are more quail? Well, now we're starting to connect those dots with public land, with um, land that may be available um, to sportsmen through, um, you know, public access programs, uh, public access, private land programs. So we're, we're connecting those dots and you're starting to see this thing come together. And so it's pretty, pretty dang exciting. And uh, we love to love to kind of be a part of that. Um, perfect example. Bob, you got it. You got well, it. I, I think just to that point, you know, the perception from the Midwest is always, well, there's no public land in the southeast like where, where's the opportunity to do work and when you look at the statistics like florida for instance you talked about you know babcock web and riding around on the swamp buggy florida has the 14th most by percentage public land of any state in the country they're almost 30 30 yeah. percent of the state is public land yeah. so what does that tell you opportunity which is opportunity yep. to do habitat work for uh, for quail for public access and like you say like you know go to the spring break in florida spend a day at the beach spend a day quail i mean oh, man. we've talked about right. that right i i gotta do that because that is yep. that is absolutely a dream spring break would you rather be sitting on a beach reading a book or in a swamp buggy chasing a bird dog around uh, <laughs> in hunting quail i mean come on that, yeah. that's that's phenomenal yeah man and then South Florida, South Florida in February, it, it's not going to be cold. <laughs> so, no. yeah, you could enjoy yeah. it, man. And you might, and you I might, do think, you might be right. Percentage wise, yeah, we we love the West and and the Midwest has a lot of available land, but there there are plenty of opportunities uh, if you're willing to. You know, it might you might have to travel a little bit to make sure you get in one of those quail areas, but yeah, you can do it. 
Yeah, yeah, and you know, I mean, I think, you know, a comment you made earlier, Andy, that I think needs a little more attention is just you got to be willing to get your chaps out and go dig in. Yeah. I mean, it's just what it is. Get away from the parking lot. Get get out in there, you know, turn on your turn on your GPS or whatever you need to do. Pull out your on you know, set a pin yeah. for the truck and go get lost a little bit and you got a good chance of finding birds. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. How, how about, you know, you mentioned a lot of new, um, a lot of new teams on the ground. How about Louisiana? Let's touch on that one. Oh man. Yeah. We got things cooking there. We got our uh, first uh, state coordinator there on the ground just a few months ago. Jackson Martini was a senior farm bill biologist for us and uh, took a leap of faith to drop south of Louisiana. And we got a really great relationship there with the natural resource conservation service and the state agency and the forest service and we were able to capitalize on some available funding to start building the team there um just this last week jackson hired four biologists um and we advertised two more positions through a rcpp a resource conservation partnership program dollars available through the farm bill to add a couple more positions as well so we are we're building quickly in uh, louisiana and we're excited about it because it is a good state you know we talked to cody citadel the upland game biologist there and he said weather conditions you know have been good it's a little bit dry but not bad enough to affect the production there um but honestly the thing that's haunting them there is just the the lack of habitat the lack of early successional habitat hurts their bird numbers but there's still some good viable populations in the western part of the state. If you go down to the Kasachi National Forest, you can uh, drive through there. I was fortunate to get to go down there just a few months ago. I uh, was invited down by Lisa Lewis, the forest supervisor, and Johnny Pryor, the district ranger. We had a nice meeting there on site at the Kasachi National Forest. The local chapter was there, um, some local bird enthusiasts, Cody Citadel, the upland game biologist for the state agency was there. And we just got to go out and look at um, look at their forest, the work they've been doing. They have about a 6,000 acre quail focal area on that national forest. Mm. And then one unique thing that, that I liked that caught my eye really quickly was that just driving through that forest, um, a lot of it is being managed for red cockaded woodpeckers, which means they're trying to get their, you know, their number of trees down below 60 per acre, a lot of fire on the landscape. And both of those create great, you know, quail habitat, honestly, that the focal area they had was beautiful, um, no doubt. And we hope to work with them to do, do more of those in the future, hopefully, but just driving through the forest. You know, I, I mean, there were a ton of areas where I thought, man, I'd pull over with my dog and go through this and see what I could find. I actually, I called my buddy Dave that I got my pointer from years ago when I got home. And I said, look, man, I just drove home from this place yesterday. It's like, it's about 12 or 13 hours from the I mean, end of the driveway here. Hey, but like, careful. We, I mean, you're just telling everybody where we might be going. I mean, dang. <laughs> well, we're we're going to pick Andy up on the way down. But uh, I said, man, I think this would be worth the drive because there were literally yeah. thousands upon thousands of acres they're managed for red cockaded woodpecker which is yeah. very beneficial yeah. for bobwhite quail and i'm sure that if you hunt the quail focal area you're going to see folks i mean no doubt there's going to be pressure because it is labeled the quail focal area and it's it's beautiful you know but but there's a whole lot of other acres on that forest that i think you could pull over and drop a dog on the ground and find yep. you know dig in like i was saying get your chaps on dig in and and go find your Go find your cubbies. Um, yeah. But just uh, like I said, you know, uh, they, you know, we were talking about hurricanes. Uh, 
that's one thing I noticed there too, is that Hurricane Ida came through a couple years ago and it, it devastated a lot of that forest. It really, I mean, the amount of work that the Forest Service did to, for the cleanup on that national forest was, was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, hundreds, if not thousands of truckloads of logs went out of there that had been, you know, wind sheared from that hurricane. And at first glance, it was, you know, it's hard to see. And, sure. but a couple of years down the road, like yeah. their quail numbers are showing the benefits from it because yeah. it was a natural thinning, if you will. And they're, they're doing things, you know, they're, they're planting lawn leaf pines and they're doing a lot of things for recovery down there. But right now, this moment in time where, there was that natural thinning of thousands and thousands of trees down there really opened up the sky for the sunlight to drop right. down, hit the ground and create a ton of good habitat. So sure. I was saying when you're driving down the road, just be looking for things that have been, you know, that active management, whether it was, you know, plow cow, hurricane, whatever it may be, <laughs> um, things that have been burned and things that have been disturbed are going to have birds. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I think that's one thing, you know, if you're coming to the Southeast from, from maybe the Midwest and you see, you know, pine stands and you think about quail and, and if, but you really have to tune yourself to like, when you see a stand that looks fairly open, a lot of times when you see a, an area that's managed for quail, you'll know it. There's, there are, there are way more, there's way more open ground than there are trees. We're talking let's just say in easy numbers, 30 or 40 trees per acre, 50 trees per acre. Uh, sure. That's noticeable. Um, and oh, and yeah. a lot of times commercial thinnings will be done every third row or every fifth row of, of trees. And that's typically not producing quail habitat. We're talking about when you drive past it and you go, oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's they just left the trees there for the looks. <laughs> That's when it's managed well. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. You know, you, but when you look at when, you know, if I were, if I were to want to go train my eye, like you could go somewhere like the Kasachi and you could go look at the quail. Oh, yeah. Area first. You know, go, yep. go yeah. look at that. It's beautiful. Um, when you're in states, other states like Missouri, go look at the quail emphasis areas. Go look at the areas where they're trying to do it on purpose, you know, yep. and, and train right. your eye a little bit and then go drive down the road and, get away from everybody, you know, and yeah. dig in and find your own birds, you know, cause they're out there and there's a lot more out there than just in the, the folk, the folk areas are great. I mean, they are phenomenal. That's it's kind of like the gem, the gem areas for grouse and things like that, where you're literally trying to do it on purpose to show people how great it can be. But then, you know, get your eye trained and drive down the road. And when you see, when you see vegetation on the ground underneath trees is getting daylight, get your dogs out, you know, and dig in. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I, and I think you can even do that if you get, if you're really proficient with on X uh, and, and it, oh, yeah. if you want to just take an hour to figure it out, quite honestly, you can, you can do it with on X too. Like if you well, have some history for knowing where birds were, look at that. Oh yeah. And then you well, can and, translate that. Yeah. Over. And look at your, look at your quail focal area on on X and see what it looks yeah. like on that aerial, you know, mm -hmm. and then just pan around until you, yep. until you see things that are similar things that, like I said, just a, yeah. uh, 50% trees or less, you know, on your aerial yep. photo and then go do some, you know, on-site investigation with your dog, you know, and, uh, yeah, uh, there'll, be, there'll be a little bit of fine tuning with that, but it'll get you awful dang close. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Right. well, yeah, if there's anything it's, it's, I hope we do through this podcast is take maybe those people that are listening that are thinking, man, I really need to do that. Or I really have wanted to do that for years. 
don't don't let like that lack of knowledge be a barrier with things like Onyx and with people that are on, you know, like on call, literally you can give them a phone call and ask them about their state. They love to talk bird hunting. Uh, look up those agency folks, uh, look up our quail forever state coordinators and send them an email, give them, you know, yep. and ask them about it. And more than Absolutely. likely you're going to get some, you're going to get some great information. We hope that we're helping to break down some of those barriers for you, you know, your entry into this. And we really want you to get out there and experience that fun. So with that, Michael, let's go to a state that, that has long been uh, a, a quail hunter's dream. Let's look at Texas. Yeah. Um, and if you've ventured down there in the last couple of years, you know, it's been sort of tough. Um, mm -hmm. Water makes and breaks Texas. Uh, when they've got rain, mm -hmm. they've got birds. Um, it's been dry for several years. I think, what was it? 2015, 16, 17, somewhere around in there. That was sort of the, the, the last, mm. you know, fantastic days. Um, yeah, yep. we, uh, we're not back to that. They have started getting some adequate rain lately. Um, you know, they got some, some, um, relief this past spring. Finally, um, they've got some, some habitat going, uh, it's, it's been dry recently. Um, I, I was talking to a, a guy in Texas a week or so ago, ordering some seed. And he said, it's been over 30 days since they've seen rain. And, and like I say, it, mm -hmm. it'll, it'll stress the birds a little bit, but um, like I said, luckily sure. they got, got the habitat up and, and going early. So um, they're looking better than they have in years past. Um, like I said, it's not, not where it was, whatever, five, six years ago now, but, it is better yeah. than it's been, and uh, they're looking for good things. Um, John McLaughlin, my counterpart over there in Texas, says, you know, they they grew a lot of cover, and um, like I say, they they had a bunch of reports and nesting birds, and and like I say, they're they're looking for for better days. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. if I remember right, maybe that southern Panhandle, and then kind of the the mid coast, um, yeah, area yeah. was was kind of. Two areas that are looking better. Yeah, and, and specifically that he said sort of that southern mid coast um, was a little better. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I've got I've got high hopes for Texas. Like I say, it's nice sure. to hear him heading yeah, in the right absolutely. direction. Sure. You know, we we kind of wanted to give you all a just a, a taste of it, if you will. We really want to direct you to go to that um, quail forecast. Go to quail forever. Uh, dot org and uh, check out our our hunting for fall hunting forecast um and you know check out bob's podcast that you did on the the pheasant forecast as well because several of those states like kansas oklahoma uh, nebraska iowa missouri were covered on that and those are some some ones i'd hate to say i'd hate to leave missouri out because really a uh, 22 percent increase uh this past year <laughs> That's I'm, I know. I'm just I, that's a that's a state nobody needs to check out. I was say that's two miles from my house, and I don't appreciate you telling everybody that. <laughs> I know it. I know it. But like, uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of a lot of really good information in there, folks. It's not just like, hey, Missouri's up this. Like, there's some specifics in those states. Um, we are somewhat careful to not hotspot folks, you know, in certain areas. But there's a lot of really great information in these in this forecast. I think you'll you'll get a lot out of it for the new bird hunter or for the the person that's still trying to sort out like I know I'm going 
in this general location or this state, well, this helps you dial it in a little bit, we hope. So um, it's, it's absolutely worth going to the website and checking out. And uh, I, I think uh, that was a, that was about as quick as this group can do for a rundown on things. I, I'm, I'm really proud of us because we all love to, uh, we, we are all buddies on this call right here on this, on this uh, podcast. And so we can certainly get off in the, in the proverbial weeds, but uh, I really appreciate Michael and uh, Tim, your time today. And thanks Bob for pulling us together. But, you know, I, I think we need to do a, we need to do a round of closing thoughts. Let's hear your words of wisdom out there for people. And uh, when they're getting out this fall, you know, about, let's start with, let's start out uh, with the wisest. Let's start out with Michael. And we'll go <laughs> I don't from know there. about all that, but <laughs> I, you touched, I, well, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, but touched on it earlier, you know, reach out to those resource professionals and in these states, you know, me and my counterparts, we're, most of us are our bird hunters. We want to talk birds and bird dogs and, you know, it's, it's a heck of a lot better than, than messing with the reports or whatever that we're doing. And so when those folks call, yeah, we're, we're proud of our areas. You know, we put a lot of work into them. We want to see hunters succeed. So yeah, give them a shout. Um, like say, we don't have a, a, a state quail coordinator in here in South Carolina, but we've got several biologists on the ground. Those guys are the same way. You know, Jake McLean up there at Indian Creek, he loves that area. That's that's his baby. He wants to talk about it. He wants you to, to be successful up there, you know. So, yeah, I mean, you know, call us, talk to us. And, you know, as far as, as dialing in on quail habitat, you know, for going from the, the 50,000 view on, on X down to you're actually there day of driving around, the one tip I have for folks is – you know, don't necessarily go to what's the prettiest. Um, you know, everybody pictures, if you're coming in from, you know, wherever, they, they picture the, the longleaf savanna with the beautiful grass and all that, and that's where they go to. Usually in the southeast, we've got long seasons. It's been hammered. Go to the heaviest, thickest, nastiest stuff you can find, whether it's, you know, blackberry brambles, you know, chickasaw plum patches. It, it's going to look bad, but you and get in there, you'll find the birds. Yeah. So that's, that's my, my closing yep. thoughts for you. I just tagged, I just tagged onto that, Michael, and say, you know, the biggest thing I learned getting older, which I hate to admit, is that you just got to not be afraid to screw up, you know, like pull your map out, look for a concentration of access and go see what you can find, you know, and realize that half or maybe even more often than half, you know, you might just fall on your face, you know, I mean, I've, I've looked at some, some, you know, recreational access program ground, you know, clumps of it and shot across the border to Missouri and realized I probably found the best deer hunting spots the state had to offer <laughs> on public land, you know, and that's okay. I mean, just cause you gotta, I don't know, you gotta, you gotta screw up to learn, I guess, you know, and yep. you'll start to, you'll train your eye and you'll start to figure things out. And the other thing is just be versatile, you know, some of the best trips I've had were because I threw a fishing pole behind the seat because I was heading somewhere warm or we were trying to find sharp tails in North Dakota and end up shooting a limited doves at a corner section, you know, and stuff like that. Just being willing to, to, to get beat once in a while and then shift and do something else and have fun. Cause that's, that is why we all do this, you know, yeah. and it doesn't have to be about a limit or whatever you're chasing. Just, 
have fun. Enjoy the fact you get to be outside and chasing your dog. And if you gotta, if you gotta shift gears and catch a red fish, be willing to do that. It's okay. I'm I'm getting all sentimental here. Sure. As you're touching on all those things, because I'm thinking about like we need to do like a hunting stories podcast. Because I mean, be willing to stay in a mercantile place in the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, and have all the biggest rats you've ever seen running around <laughs> back where the shower was, and the shower stall was, in the warehouse. Like, be willing to do that. Uh, it's worth it, isn't it? Andy, Andy Michael, said to an old guy. Andy said to an yeah. old guy in a coffee shop one time. He said, "Hey, you you ever seen birds on your property? Would you care if we hunted?" He said. I see 10 or 15 every time I go get the mail. If you want to come over and try, you can. And an hour and a half later, seven of us had 21 pheasants on the field. It's okay. It's the most epic stuff I'd ever seen. You know, that's a, pr- that's a pretty good point, too, though. Just randomly, you know, talk to folks, you know, at the gas stations when you're there. If you see oh, somebody yeah. in the field, you know, as a general rule, most bird hunters are not jerks. You know, you walk up to them, you've got immediately, you got something in common and, you know, I've met some good folks out in the field yeah. and like I say, they're, they're a resource too. So, Oh yeah. Mail carries, mail carriers and coffee shop owners are the people to talk to. <laughs> I know the surveys are great, but <laughs> yeah. So, so sure. one thing I'm, I'm wondering, Michael, is cause I know we've talked in the past about being out bobway quail hunting and you'll encounter some woodcock you'll have a great oh, yeah. woodcock shoot and tim mentioned that uh, you know in virginia you know doves mm-hmm. woodcock bob whites and i know rgs over the years has done some stories uh in their publication covers about yeah. woodcock hunting in louisiana and oh, yeah. so here's the baseball analogy of this episode and i'm thinking about like being out bob white hunting and when a covey of bob whites rise it's about as most the most fun you can have with your clothes on you know, it's it's just jaw dropping yeah. excitement, right? When thirteen wing beats rise to the air, it's it's magical, it's religious, it's it's just mm. exhilarating. Mm-hmm. It's it's like thirteen fastballs coming at you from you know Nolan Ryan, Justin Verlander. You take your pick uh, of era of <laughs> fireball pitchers, but then your dog's on point. In a woodcock gets up in a tornado. It's like the biggest changeup and hit, <laughs> oh. right? You're expecting yeah. you're expecting 13 fastballs and a woodcock gets up at you. Like oh. I just would imagine it's vapor lock. When you're out quail hunting, Michael, and a woodcock gets, are you hunting the exact same cover and you just don't know? Like sometimes a woodcock's gonna be what flushes, or do you have a pretty good indication of I think this might be a changeup. I mean, the short answer is, yeah, you, you really never know. Um, you know, uh, you can sort of, you can target woodcock and pretty much exclude quail if you're so inclined. But if you're targeting quail, you've got a pretty good shot at, at running across um, woodcock as well. You know, anywhere in the uplands, we're going to find those woodcock. Now they may not be as concentrated as they are down in the Creek bottoms or along river bottoms or what have you, but they're going to be up there. And, and you do, I, you know, it's exactly like you're describing. You're expecting a, a rush and all of a sudden a single bird gets up and it's twisting and turning. And, and you know, it's just, it is different. I mean, yeah. like say, I don't know that you ever get used to it, but 
It, yeah, I mean, you get a lot of those curveballs, as you call them. And, you know, that's, that's you know, hmm. our Woodcock seasons are late. You know, in, in South Carolina, ours opens up in middle of December, December 18th, and goes to the 31st of January. So, mm-hmm. you know, I imagine that's similar right. across the Southeast. You can do a lot of, 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 of double dipping there. And it's, it's a blast, man, you know. Hmm. Yeah. I know some of our new uh, our our new staff in the southeast have uh, only been on a couple of years. They're they're getting into that. Some of them with their first dogs, and they're heading to Louisiana. It goes through the end of oh, yeah. January as well. They're heading to Mississippi, uh, and they're getting after woodcock for sure. Uh, so a great a great uh, additional uh, option there if you want to include that. Their seasons are overlapping most of most of the southeastern states. They are overlapping in January for sure. So. Yeah, get after them. I mean, but Woodcock flights are, are going on right and you know right now, hot and heavy in the upper Midwest, and and uh, we just we just wait on y'all to get through with them up there, and we, we, we get them down here. Well, yeah, I really appreciate y'all coming together for us today and talking Bob Whites. It's been great. Um, obviously, an easy crew to talk with. Uh, y'all are some of my my best buds, so I appreciate that. And I, I, again, want to point you back to the, if you're listening, point you back to that, that forecast on the website and dial in where you're thinking about going. If you want a little more info, really dig into the state's website and then, you know, maybe reach out to the small game coordinator or to the uh, private lands biologists in a certain area or our staff. Look on our website as well and find the staff nearest to where you're going to hunt. Try to reach out to them by email and, and see what you get. So, um, and again, don't don't let the lack of information or the fear of, like Tim said, fear of screwing it up. Man, uh, we've been we've been at this for a long time, and I still feel like a rookie about a third of, the, maybe a little more of the time, uh, depending on what bird we're chasing. But it's always fun. We're always going to laugh and and enjoy it, um, and just get out there and try it. Uh, another another resource for for you, new or just kind of if you're experienced at hunting one bird, but you might want to try out another one, check out our How to Hunt Upland Birds series. And that's right on Pheasants Forever's website slash how to hunt. Um, go there, sign up for that series, and check it out. There's all different species are covered. It's a great collaborative effort. Um, don't let the lack of, um, you know, the, either the fear of getting into a new new species or sport or the lack of understanding of it be a limiting factor for you. Get out there and try it. Right on. And one of our board members, John Kohler, um, from from the southeast, always says, you know, when you experience bobwhite quail flushing, it's like a dopamine hit. And he's yeah. so he's so right that, you know, if you've never experienced a covey of bobwhites, fl- you know, on the rise, <clears throat> it is so damn it addicting <laughs> and you just yeah. it's just it's something special you know you're alive and uh get out there and chase it Wh- whether it's uh you know florida south carolina alabama you'll you'll learn a whole lot about uh, a brand new bird if you've never done it before and you'll be as addicted as these guys are so for michael hook from south carolina tim corin and andy edwards andy thank you very much for taking the lead on this one this is a great conversation Great. Thank you, Bob. Um, I'm Bob St. Pierre, thanking you for listening and reminding you to always 
follow the dog. That covey is gonna rise, and uh, you're gonna you're gonna remember that one forever. Always follow that dog, folks. Thanks for listening.